Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our Canadian listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to the Thriving Artist Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Mary Pratt and Barbara Astman. Now, despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. This gets solved with entrepreneurial education and opportunities to collaborate and organize. That's why if you're a working artist, you need to join the Artist Federation. You can do this at theartistfederation.com. There is no charge to register and exciting new opportunities are coming. Register and meet other working artists who are forming local chapters to influence their markets, to exchange business skills and professional support, and to determine their own professional destinies. It starts by creating an account and saying hello at theartistfederation.com. Now, our guest today is Catherine Futter. Catherine is the Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. She began her career at Nelson Atkins 15 years ago. Before that, she served at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Virginia, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She holds a doctorate in art history from Yale University. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Danielle. My pleasure to be here. Now, Catherine, can you take a minute to just tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and your work? Sure. I started out my career as a decorative arts curator and working in encyclopedic museums. I loved the opportunity to work with all kinds of art from all different periods. And uh, since I've been at the Nelson Atkins for the last 15 years, I've been focusing more on contemporary art, but I also have a particular interest in the way visitors participate, not just passively, but actually actively with works of art. So I've done some specific projects around that theme. Now, Catherine, how would you describe the curator's role? I mean, we know the dictionary definition, but could you go more deeply into what you really do or what that involves? Well, one of the joys about being a curator is that you are constantly doing different things. So it can be anything from uh, looking at art, researching art, uh, acquiring art to interpreting it, teaching it. Uh, fundraising for it, um, installing it, designing exhibitions for it. So it's a very varied experience, and that's what makes it such a joy. As I like to say, no two works of art are the same, and therefore no two projects are the same. And so it's a constant uh, change in one's experience. So are you saying that the the variety is probably the most satisfying aspect, or or is there another one? I think it's the variety. And for me, when I think about what I would miss if I stopped being a curator, it's working with living artists. Those conversations that I have that really open my mind up to what art can be, what our lives can be, how things can be transformed. Okay, so that's the happy place of curation. But what's the biggest challenge of directing curation as you do? You have to work with people. And people are challenging, and sometimes you have people at the Nelson Atkins, and I think in most museums we work in teams, so there's, yes, the curator's voice might be the loudest or might be the most directed, but you, in order to accomplish any goals, you have to work with a great number of people, and sometimes that can be the unhappy place in a curator's life. Well, talk to me about how these exhibitions actually come about then, uh, because there are a lot of people involved, right? Do they, do they start with the artist or the gallerist or a business manager? Uh, how, does, how, do, how do they happen? 
usually it starts from maybe it's a work of art or maybe you've gone to an exhibition or maybe you've gone to a gallery and that sparks an interest. And maybe it's something that you've been thinking about for a long time, like I'm interested in synesthesia. So that's something that I've been thinking about what is, what would make an interesting exhibition, maybe not a big exhibition, a small one, how would that manifest itself? And so you start putting together maybe in your mind, maybe actually in files, groupings of things. You find an artist who touches a nerve. You want to work with that artist. You think you might want to pursue a project. So they're all different ways of going about it, but it usually starts from the works of art themselves. Uh, synesthesia is a fun theme. I, uh, I was in uh, Denver recently and went to a supper club uh, that is jazz-themed, and they have a, a jazz uh, tribute act usually. Like, for instance, they'll do jazz for Thelonious Monk, and they'll serve you um, all of the courses of your meal. You'll get a, a five-course meal, and each course will represent a movement within that jazz performer's career and will match the music you're hearing on stage. And, of course, that's not synesthesia, but it is one of those cross-sensory areas of interest that, um, you know, synesthesia represents. Can I just ask, um, can you explain for those in the audience that may not know what synesthesia is, um, can we follow this little side trail for a second and you, you tell us what that means and, and what fascinates you and have you done an exhibition uh, or, or curated an exhibition about that? So synesthesia is when one of you are looking at something, one of your senses activates another of your senses. So say you're looking at a painting and you hear music, or you look at a painting and you smell flowers, that trigger in your brain that activates another one of your senses is considered synesthetic or synesthesia. And one of the most famous artists who had, we think, um, close to it was Kandinsky. When he did his paintings, he heard music. And there are a lot of artists that have art, uh, musician friends. And so there is that kind of synesthetic experience that can come through. I have not done an ex exhibition yet, but it's something that as I, when we were talking about being a curator, it's that sort of beginning to build that checklist or those group of objects. What would this exhibition look like if I wanted to do an exhibition about synesthesia? Would it be a historical one? Are there contemporary artists that are working on this theme that might allow our audiences to have synesthesia? So that's where for me, a curator's ideas might take years to actually manifest themselves in an exhibition. See, I love that. Um, it's a great example uh, and part of why we do this show, because um, you can get the facts, but you can't get the inside look unless we're talking to someone like yourself that can kind of give us, you know, what does it look like through your eyes? So to that point, um, I have a few questions about how working artists interact with curators and how they can work with curators. Um, let me ask you this first, because you're, you're talking about sometimes a particular artist or their work. Um, you used a term, a word, I can't, I don't quite remember it, but it grabs you basically. How much interaction do you get with the artists themselves? Do you actually travel to their studios or, or have other forms of interaction that are, that are intense? I find that those conversations in the studios are probably the most important part. And honestly, the most enjoyable part for me. When an exhibition opens, it's great to expose work to other audiences, but my personal 
um, take away are those conversations. And as we discuss where a project might go and where I like to work with artists where maybe the exhibition, the installation is actually moving their own work along, not being sort of predetermined of a group of objects that already exist, or I should say works that already exist. There's that excitement of opening up the crates for the first time and seeing work you've never seen before. But the artist is is really experimenting or pushing their own um, practice in new directions or something they've always wanted to try. That is that's the best part of all the projects. So I visit studios when I can. What's the most interesting studio visit you've had? Oof. Let's see. Well, I think I went to Tom Sachs's studio. That was absolutely riveting. But then I've also visited, I worked with Claire Toomey on a project. And she's an English artist that works with ceramics as an ephemeral medium. And we sat around her dining room table playing with plastic cups and paper. And that was a fantastic conversation and moved a project way, way further forward. So those that I will never forget that experience of sitting just around the table with those things. I thought you were going to say something like, it's the one where they locked the door behind me. <laughs> Fortunately, that has never happened to me. <laughs> I'll tell you the most disappointing one was being so excited by somebody's work and thinking, okay, I'm so, I really want to do a project. And the end of the conversation was, tell me the schedule, tell me the budget, and what was the last thing? Tell me the space. And I just thought, no, 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 that's not what I like. That's not like, that's not the way I like to work with a contemporary artist. If all the artists are dead, it's fine. <laughs> well, help us understand the, the curatorial process for a living artist. What, what is the process ideally? How should it work or how does it work most of the time? The way it works for me, and I'm sure other curators would have very different perspectives, but I think first is there's something about the work that really you think, wow, I really want to show this work to the public. I, there's something here that I really think will open our visitors' eyes, will make them think about the world in different ways. And then the next thing is, can I do a studio visit? I never walk in and say, hey, let's do a project together. First, I want to get to know them. Is this something that they're interested in? Most of these exhibitions are not huge, big ticket, you know, huge budgets or anything like that, and start having those conversations. And I really do want to be able to work with people that will be fun to work with. If you're going to be fighting with somebody the whole time, that's not going to be a very pleasant experience because in the end, everybody's going to be disappointed. Well, now let's flip it around for a second and uh, look at it through the eyes of the working artist who has sold some work. Um, they've got an audience, but they've never worked with a museum or a curator. How do they get started if that's something they want to do? Well, I think it's mostly, I mean, one artist that I worked with, it was from a picture in a magazine. I mean, why it? I just couldn't stop thinking about the picture in the magazine, so I followed up. I actually was talking about a space in a building that didn't even exist yet and started just having a conversation. 
So I think it is, it's not sending curators slides of your work or images of your work that I think rarely goes anywhere. Um, I think it is, whether it's a group show, it's, it's exposure, unfortunately. It is we will find people or it's other curators telling each other, hey, I met this person. I'm not sure I can work with them, but I found the work so exciting. And we do talk to each other all the time. So I don't think there's one path to get to an exhibition with a museum, but there is getting your work so we can see it is, is very important. Well, you're singing my song. So, you know, the area of expertise, my practice area as one of the educators at the Clark Healings Fund, is to deliver education on marketing. And of course, we talk a lot about um, creating exposure, um, getting written about in the press, uh, creating visibility for your work. In, in fact, I run a marketing company called Madpipe, and uh, we've developed something we call the three R's, which sounds like exactly what you're talking about. It's reach, reputation, and relationships. And so uh, your reach is how big is the audience you can reach at any given time. When you make something, how many people's eyes can you get on it? And that's sort of the first stage. And then your reputation comes out of that. It is what are you known for? What is your brand? What you know, when people think of you or your art, what do they think of? What images are in their head? And that needs to be fleshed out. And then finally, what comes out of that is the relationships. Because you have this wide reach and you have this reputation, the relationships start becoming easier uh, to accrue. And it sounds like what you're saying is don't start day one and just here's my resume and pictures of my work to the curator um, because that you don't have the, the reach and reputation yet uh, to merit that relationship. But if you build the reach and reputation, um, you accrue the relationship. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want to make sure that because this is an area where I'm responsible to sort of make artists aware of the process, is this what you're saying? Are you, are you sort of validating that? Or would you spin off of that and go a different way? Oh, I completely validate it. And I think that there, today, there are so many ways that you can get your work in front of curators, whether through social media, that can be one way, through Instagram, that's another way, which is also social media, but, and through, I mean, there's all these different, like, e-flux and that are publishing about exhibitions with group shows. And there's just so much that sometimes as curators, you're completely overwhelmed. But if you're flipping through something quickly, it may be that thing that catches your eye and you think, wait a minute, stop, go back, find who is this person? Where have they shown? Who have they shown with? All those kind. how do I see more of the work? And then you start that path of exploring and researching to find out whether that somebody you would like to work with. So I'm validating your approach. Well, that's, that's good. It's less for me, but I, I really want to make sure that, you know, working artists, both in our audience, because, you know, the podcast is a way in which we deliver uh, education in a digestible format, but also, you know, even the, the graduate fellows that we have in our educational program, that they've got this insight, because this is a, a just such a common question, you know, gosh, I want to work with, with curators, and I, I don't even know how to reach them. Should I start, you know, should I call them up? What should I do? Can I, I just, I do want to follow up on one thing, which is a lot of curators I know will do sort of practice 
studio visits. So if you have curators in your town, you can always ask them if they would be willing to come by and do a studio visit. Personally, what I like is somebody gives me a question that they want answered or want responded to. So, for instance, an artist, a young artist might say to me, I'm having an exhibition and I'm not quite sure about the hang, or I'm working on three bodies of work and I don't think they have anything to do with each other. What do you think? So by presenting me with a question, it isn't somebody just coming in and saying, do you like my work? What can I do to improve my work? I don't like being put in that position. I think a lot of curators do not. But if somebody comes with a question to be answered, then I can give expertise. They get something out of it. I learn more about how they're communicating about their art. I can even give feedback like, you need to be more coherent or please talk about your work in this way. Or it becomes an educational moment and it isn't the stress of, am I going to get a show out of this? So using those and have, and I think even dealers do them. I know a dealer who will do a studio visit as a practice run, not as a, here we are, I'm trying to get into the gallery. Well, this is extremely valuable. You know, we're kind of getting over into the sales side of things, which is also an interest uh, that we have. And um, I I sort of thought you were going to say, no, there's no hope there. Don't reach out. Uh, But I'm really glad you clarified because... Uh, we do encourage working artists to to take that into their own hands and make some contacts. But I like how you're kind of scripting the methodology. So it's not so on the nose, right, as, hey, we put my work in your museum. <laughs> it's you need to develop the relationship uh, with, with somebody first, and they need to have a sense of who you are and what your work is. And they're not going to get that if, you, if you're just so obviously uh, gaming the system. But, you know, if you just go for honest feedback uh, in the way you're talking about, and not a feedback, but an on, everybody does that. You know, give me feedback on my work, but an honest, specific request. I love that at worst, you go away with your answer if it's a genuine question you have. So you can't really lose, <laughs> you know. And the nice thing is, is but but if you're, if you're only asking the question to, as an excuse to try to get in, um, I think somebody's going to smell a rat. Mm-hmm. So I love that. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so you're demanding kind of an authenticity in the approach, and you're demanding that there's kind of an exchange of value in the approach. And I, I think that's one of the hallmark principles of both sales and marketing, is if there's not value in it for both people, um, that it, it doesn't work. It, it's inauthentic, and, and nothing comes of it. Um, so that's lovely. Yep, exactly. Clarify something for me. Are there different roles uh, when you do work with living artists? Are there different roles of working with museum curators? For instance, do some get shows and some merely get an exhibit? And for some, there are other type of arrangements. Oh, absolutely. There are. It can be. It can end up in millions of different places. Whether it's an acquisition can come in. That's one way. It could be an exhibition. It could be a even talking. You know, we have collectors. There's somebody that you think, well, not yet for the museum, but you can tell the collectors that we work with. You know, this is somebody I really think we should all be watching, and that can take you different places. So there, I think there's so many different. It's again going back to what you were saying about relationships. They're just so important, and and maintaining them. I mean, I would. 
met an artist a number of years ago and he just was back in touch. And I said, so send me images of your current work. And he said, like, go to my Instagram account. And, you know, that led me on another path. So don't think that just because you've done an exhibition, in fact, with my living art, I shouldn't say my, with the artists that I've worked with who are living, I maintain those relationships. When I go to England, I see clear to me. When I, I've, those people have become friends and I care very much about their work and them as people. So there's, that relationship is maintained. When you're working with these artists, is there back and forth or do you instruct them and they follow your instructions? I, I would never instruct, but I would maybe guide Claire. She, I didn't consider myself curating the experience and she said, oh no, you are. Because I was giving positive feedback or, oh, have you thought about this or so it was a constant, I shouldn't say constant, but it was a dialogue. It was not just me saying, this is what you need to do. But it is also sometimes you have an artist who says, this is what I'm going to do. And I can say, ooh, you know, I'm not sure that would work in the museum. Or have you thought about that? And maybe you won't come to anything that we won't work together. Or, But I don't ever want an artist to come away from a uh, project with me feeling like it was a negative experience or that I forced them to do something that they didn't want to do. I would say, and even to back up even further, which is I consider these projects that I've worked on experimentation and that we're all working together to move an artist forward in the kinds of projects that they want to do. So I would not come in and say to an artist, oh, I love this work. I want more of this. It's sort of when we're having the conversation, is this the way, are you still following this path? And is that where, or is there something that you've always wanted to try? Or is there a new body of work that you're thinking about? And it's those kinds of conversations that lead us to what an exhibition and installation and work of art that might end up in the museum will be like. Well, now, when working with a museum, how does the artist get paid or, or does that differ depending on the artist? Uh, it mostly for the projects that I have done, it's by project. So it is, this is your budget for your work. If you can, sometimes that may say that includes the materials and shipping and everything, or there are times when I can say, this is sort of your artist fee and that goes into the production, but the museum will pay all the shipping and any cost, like the museum, all, at least at the Nelson Atkins, we pay for the shipping and the insurance and things like that. But it differs from every exhibition or every project. And we always have contracts for it so that everybody knows exactly what the expectations are, the scheduling is, the payment plan, who's responsible. And that's all worked out. So there's no misunderstanding later on. Yeah, I was curious about the payment plan. If it's sort of like a corporate project where very often it's half down and half on completion, or if there are you know regular touch points uh, and milestones, just like there are in long-term uh, corporate projects where you're paid at the completion of, of individual milestones. It, I would say, individual milestones. So some artists might come and say, "I can't start the work unless you know there's phase one." So I may say, "Well, I need to see." design drawings, or I may need to see 
so before the museum um, sends somebody money, but then it's by milestones. And then the last amount is on the completion of the installation, not at the close of the exhibition, but the installation. So everything, all the parts of the artist's commitment are met. Well, it's interesting, you know, we've, um, so the Clark Healings Fund has a, a graduate fellowship program called the Business Accelerator Program. And one of the primary skills that we are teaching is how to develop an investment grade proposal and a project plan that ultimately is broken down into milestones and phases that can be understood by somebody who would um, actually engage you uh, for the completion of that that plan or for some portion of it, whether that's a public work or, um, you know, an installation that uh, a museum might curate or whatever. So it's it's actually quite helpful to hear you say that, you know, it works kind of like corporate projects do, where there are milestones and phases and that you have to kind of know how to put a plan like that together, that that is an essential business skill um, for, for working artists who want this kind of work. I wonder... Um, you know, we know that the role of galleries is evolving. Um, are there changes also in the way that museums and curators structure their programs and relationships and projects with working artists? I wouldn't, I don't think so. I think that sometimes it's directly artists to museums, sometimes it's through a gallery. So it really depends. I have to say, I think that, you know, the bigger the name of the artist, the more likely the gallery is going to be involved. And that can be a very positive thing because that alleviates the artist from having to worry about minutia. But you know, I think there are also some artists that really enjoy working with curators and don't need that or don't want that kind of, I don't want to say middleman, but somebody sort of who can, let's put it in a positive way, a facilitator. Well, are there changes that you wish would occur in how museums currently interact with artists? Are there changes to the way the system works, in other words, that seem to make sense to you but aren't yet part of the norm? I can't think of any. I mean, I really find that it's very personal, and each one, again, I work in a big institution, and yet I also feel that I have flexibility to make these projects happen. Maybe I'm extremely fortunate that way, but that's the way I have functioned for the last 15 years in in working with living artists. So we're going to swap in a moment to talking a little bit about museum collaboration and collectors. But first, I just want to speak to the audience and say, if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. So share this commitment with us now at clarkhealingsfund.org donate. That's clarkhealingsfund.org donate. We certainly appreciate it. Now, um, I wanted to ask you, Catherine, you curated an international loan traveling exhibition, Inventing the Modern World, Decorative Arts at World Fairs, and that opened in 2012. And you selected objects from both international museums and private collections. So first, what, what's the impetus for private collectors to participate or collaborate with museums? Well, there's a purely financial reason, which is by exhibiting a work of art in an institution that's well-known that can sometimes elevate the value of it. And we think as 
museums, we think about that. It's one of the reasons that we have codes of ethics to uh, museums will ensure that a collector will not sell a collection right after an exhibition of the of the works because it does, it can elevate the value of it. So that's one reason that a collector might do it. Um, another can be that the museum is covering the insurance and the collector does not have to cover the cost of the insurance. Another can be there's prestige and it has nothing to do with value, but it has being able to tell your friends that your piece is on view at the Nelson Atkins. And then you can flip it around and why is it valuable to the museum? And it's valuable because there are works of art that are not in institutions that are not readily accessible and that they're held by private collectors. Well, now, are there some collectors that are also reticent to pull their works from their collections for this purpose? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, I think our entire field is about personal relationships. And maybe this is getting slightly off point here, but a collector intellectually gives to a museum, and yet they give it because of the personal relationship with the director, the curator, the conservator, they give it because of a personal relationship that they know that that person is going to care for the work of art for the future. Well, now, let me ask you, do you ever do traveling exhibits that weave in the works of local and regional artists along with museum and private collection pieces? Yes. Um, I did an exhibition that was actually part of the um, national, oh gosh, it's called NSICA, and I'm going to get it also, the National Council for the Education of the Ceramic Arts. I think I got it in the right order. And that was had uh, some private collection. It also had uh, regional and local artists. It had international artists. It So it was all of those components coming together, all of them living artists. Well, do the galleries uh, also play a role in exhibits like that, especially when involving local and regional or, or at all? They can. They can. In that case, they did. We had at least one, if not two galleries that, or maybe even at least a couple of galleries that participated or we worked with on the loans, yes. So let me ask you this then. So we're sort of talking about um, collectors and then branching out and talking about um, the you know the community where the museum actually exists, um, as well as the communities in which a traveling exhibition might occur that's sponsored by the museum. What role, in your view, does a museum play in the community? Oh, that's a big, big question um, with many, many facets. So, but I think from maybe where you're coming from and where your audience might be coming from is how do museums in a community work with their local artists. And there's some institutions that are extremely collaborative with their local audiences, or local artists rather. And then there's some that have a much more distant relationship. I will say the Nelson Atkins historically had, was considered that it did not show local artists. I think we've broken that down, especially in the last um, 10 years is showing more local artists, but we also have other museums and other venues in town. And so we don't feel that that is the Nelson Atkins role in the community. We feel that our role in the community 
is to show art of all different periods from all different places for um, a very wide community and a very diverse community. But now you yourself um, have a pretty strong relationship or, or have had uh, with various artists in a, in a mentorship role. So you, you mentor artists and yourself were mentored at, uh, as a fellow at the Center for Curatorial Leadership. Uh, can you tell us, you know, how did you decide to participate in that and how's, how has that influenced your career? Well, first, let me go as a mentor and then we'll go as a mentee. Um, as a mentor, again, it goes back to those conversations. It goes back to working and talking with artists and really exploring ideas and admittedly taking a great deal of pleasure in artists finding, I don't want to say success, but but moving their practice along. And those conversations are, again, they're ongoing. I don't, most of them don't happen once. It's really about timing. It's about timing whether the artist really wants to have those conversations. Some artists, like one time I had a young artist, and even though I was supposed to be his mentor, he just, it was not the right time for him. And so we, I said, don't be embarrassed. If you ever want to call me, you just call me and we'll meet. And it is, it just gives me a lot of personal pleasure to have those conversations and to watch an artist's work develop. As a mentee, it has certainly furthered my career as, um, especially the Center for Curatorial Leadership really gave me insights about strategic thinking, strategic planning, and I think that's also something that I probably bring as a mentor, which is I'm thinking about if you want to get from point A to point D, do you have to go to B and C, or can you, how, what is your path going to be, and maybe it's not a straight line. So thinking about how we can all accomplish our goals. I like those words, mentor and mentee. I like to think of the people that have completed their menteeship as mentos. You know, they're fresh. They're fresh. They're like the fresh maker. They're fresh from the... Well, anyway, I'm kidding around. (laughs) (laughs) And we're not plugging mentos on this show. (laughs) That's good. But yes, if you're not a mentee or a mentor, you're probably a mentor. That's probably right. Um, Staying on this local theme for a second, because you're right, it's not our sole purpose for raison de jour here, but um, but it is kind of a segment of the show that we carved out to ask you about. What are the benefits of artists working in Missouri, uh, for instance, as opposed to, you know, traditional art hotspots like Los Angeles or New York? I think it's called rent. <laughs> I mean, you can get an enormous studio here. And I've been to studios in Brooklyn and Queens, and they're tiny. And so there's that. You will have to work harder to get your um, visibility on a national playing field. But um, Anne Hamilton works out of Columbus, Ohio, in an enormous studio. The artists here have the benefit of land and space, and I would say also a collecting community that supports their work, maybe not as much as they would like, but I still think we have galleries here in Kansas City. Um, I would also say, and I I think uh, St. Louis as well, has museums, there's art spaces. One of the things I think is wonderful about Kansas City is how many residency programs we have. 
and but you can find that in Minneapolis as well. So it's there's opportunities here which mean that there are artists, maybe they've gone to the Kansas City Art Institute, they tend to stay around because there's opportunities here for, as I said, residencies, there's opportunities for galleries to show their work, and whether they're small galleries or bigger ones, whether they're ones that go to Chicago art fairs or freeze or all kinds of things like that. So there are, I think, great opportunities here. Do you have to work a little harder? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know what you mean about this thing in New York. I mean, doesn't everybody, when they open their fridge, doesn't it block the bathroom? I I don't understand. <laughs> uh, no, it, it is true. There is. I live in a neighborhood in Brooklyn that is next to Bushwick, which is known as uh, one of a couple of, of arts meccas in uh, um, in Brooklyn because of all the available loft studio space. And, uh, of course, you know, I know what, what those artists are paying for that. And while it's considered low for, for New York, it's probably, it's still pretty small up there. They're like little little hen cages. <laughs> yeah, I, that's exactly what they are, little hen cages. <laughs> Well, you know, as long as you paint really small artwork or use a really small brush <laughs> or you yourself are a really small artist, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> physically, not in terms of reputation, you'd probably be okay. That's, no, it's, that, there's plenty of that stuff. That is true. Here, yes, there are trade-offs. So speaking of, of artists and, and those car- sort of career choices, like where, where they're going to work and, and how it's going to affect how they promote themselves and so on. What do you hear artists say most often that they need for their careers, you know, that they don't have or that they're missing or seeking? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, I, uh, maybe it is more gallery show. I don't, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've had interesting conversations with very project-oriented artists who get torn with, torn by whether they should be really much more in the marketplace and have a gallery and produce work that is collectible. And I don't mean that with a small C, but, you know, or whether they really are artists who are project-based and that interaction with the public and the community is really vital to their work. And so I think there's that balance of wanting to be able to do your work, but also be able to survive on, you know, support yourself. Well, do you think there is um, just as much opportunity to make uh, a successful, lasting, lucrative career out of being either one of those categories, um, what you're calling, you know, more of a project-based artist versus sort of a a permanent exhibit-based artist or gallery-based artist? Well, I think the project-based artists are going to be much more grant-driven and that, of course, is a hard way to live. There's, I think, more they're going to piece together a career that's going to be project-based and then teaching or research or something like that. So I think probably if one can be a lucrative gallery artist, that is definitely more financially feasible. But maybe the trade-off is you're now, I don't know, feeding that monster. I don't know. Well, it's interesting, you know, because we see and we've we've talked about in other shows, we've interviewed gallerists and we've talked to people about what's happening in the gallery world, which is kind of a decline of the traditional gallery model. 
and um, you know a lot of factors are affecting that um, the way in which consumers view and access art um, changes in uh, urban patterns you know where art is is sort of congealed or con, you know consolidated where, where art galleries used to be contiguous and now they're sort of spreading out um, and the rise in competition with you know alternative art spaces and so on so there's a lot of things affecting it and I wonder you know as we talk in sort of the final segment of the show about the art market in general and where the museum really fits is museum culture really so removed from that is it would you say it you, you kind of indicated earlier that you don't see museums in as much flux is there really truly an insulated uh, reality for museums and I asked this uh, to be honest Catherine because you know I read a New York Times article that was saying that um, museums are starting to try to create sort of um, museums and, and, and galleries are, are competing with one another a little bit be, and starting to try to create uh, art experiences that are a little more full-on than just sort of displays precisely because they're, they're sort of competing for a limited brick-and-mortar audience so my underlying motivation is wondering whether that's true. I think it is true, especially for maybe some of the more, like I read about the, I think it's the Contemporary Art Museum in Chicago. I don't think it's, or maybe it's the Art Institute of Chicago. Sorry, I'm going to be, but doing a Murakami show and they cannot keep the merchandise in. That's a very different kind of model than people coming and looking at art. And so it now becomes, but there's, We've always been, and the art world has always been also about commerce. And so the museum is also about commerce. And, you know, from anything from the museum has to acquire works of art and they cost. So there's costs involved or the the value of the collection changes. So that means that our insurance policies change, you know, those kinds of things, or you need to raise funds to buy art. And we have collectors who are interested in the value of art of, of art. So we're not, we're not an Island by any means. And we have to be alert to the changes in the art market. Um, I will say that I think that museums are quite conservative places, encyclopedic museums, not contemporary art ones, um, are pretty conservative places because we look at, are the collections going to, I'm going to use the word value, be valued, not in terms of financial or monetary value, but be valued 50 years in the future because we are not in the business of buying art and then selling art. That's not our business. So we think about things staying here for, if not forever, for a long time. So we are always thinking about that kind of permanence of the collection. Am I answering your question? <laughs> yes. I mean, there's no okay. one simple answer. So it's, no. um, it's an exploration. And, and also we talk about uh, markets and the, and the art market changing. Um, you know, we have all these issues of what do we mean by the art market and, and uh, what type of art and which aspect of the art market and how do we even know what the future is. We, we talk about change because we're in the moment we see what is, but we don't know what will be even a moment from now. So it is a difficult area of exploration. I, I think knee-jerk answers sometimes um, fall short of that. And I, I think that's what you're 
you're sort of nodding to, but uh, it sounds like you are suggesting there is some place where the market and the museum meet, that they're not completely separate realities. They're not separate at all. I think also, we're also seeing, and I think you also made reference to that as well, is that we have, there are galleries now that are doing loan shows, that there's maybe very little work in the exhibition that's for sale. So, yes, they are, and they're doing catalogs. They're publishing books by noted scholars. They're, quote-unquote, competing with museums. So, yes, the lines are becoming blurrier. And that's I think some of that is positive. Like I think... We, as as a museum curator, used to be there was a hierarchy. You were in academia. That was the highest level. And then you worked at a museum. And then you were, quote, unquote, in the trade, meaning that you handled money. So you worked at an auction house or a gallery. That's much more fluid nowadays. So what excites you, uh, Catherine, about the future of arts or the future of the arts? Uh so much. I mean, I just love looking and learning and making connections. And I mean, as I say, if I don't learn something new every day, it was a bad day. So um, it's a constant, whether it's a, I'm doing an exhibition or installing an exhibition right now about Picasso and global art. It's looking at a Cossebwe mask and seeing it, thinking about it in, in its original role, how we look at it today. It's then looking at a piece of high design. That's the joy, is learning and looking. The exhibition Through the Eyes of Picasso opens at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City, Missouri on October 20th and actually kicks off with uh, a gala called called Create the Night Gala on October 14th, which is a black tie all-out affair. If you are in the Kansas City, Missouri area, you should definitely uh, go to nelson-atkins.org or just Google the phrase Nelson Atkins Museum. You'll find it's the first result and and check that out. Um, So Catherine, uh, and I like to tease you, Catherine, a little bit, so I just want to make sure we understand that's in Kansas City, Kansas, right? No, that would be in Kansas (laughs) City, Missouri, (laughs) or Missouri. It's in Kansas City, Missouri. Or Missouri. Missouri, yes, exactly. (laughs) So I'm I'm doing that on purpose to emphasize when we say Kansas City, Missouri, we mean actually Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, you can lose your, your, your entire audience if you're standing in Kansas City, Missouri, and say, it is so great to be in Kansas, and the whole audience turns you completely out. <laughs> yeah, where's the Picasso exhibit? Yeah. I heard it was around here somewhere. You know? <laughs> well, at least you can get some barbecue, but no Picasso for you. Oh, and we can talk about Dorothy, too. <laughs> there you go. Well, so uh, finishing up with just a, a fun question, Catherine, what's next for you? What's on your plate for the future? Oh, maybe a rest. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm working, I don't know, I'm, I, I have some projects that are just in, in the cooker. I'd like to do a show about concrete, uh, geometry, solid geometry in the 1960s. That's something I'm really interested in because it was a period of rationalism between two periods of irrationalism. So between abstract expressionism and, sort of psychedelia. So I've been thinking about that and it's really hits all, it's sort of a zeitgeist exhibition. So I've been thinking about that, but I don't have it on the books yet. So just collecting ideas. 
You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this show, be sure and subscribe and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. For more information on the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, visit nelson-atkins.org. That's nelson-atkins.org. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. And to sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org donate. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Catherine. It's been really great having you. Thank you, Daniel.